Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hey. <laughs> I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chew Man Chew and our wonderful producer, Dr. Crystal Nora. Woo-woo. Hello. Team, how are we doing tonight? Doing fantastic. What a great show. Our guest tonight, Dr. Michael Roth, was here to discuss cancer survivorship. But before Chris, let's remind everyone about the show. Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Michael Roth. He's a pediatric hematologist, oncologist, and associate professor at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's also the director of the Childhood Cancer Survivorship Program and the co-director of the Adolescent and Young Adult Program at MD Anderson and chairs the AYA committees in the Children's Oncology Group. He's passionate about improving short and long-term outcomes for children, adolescents, and young adults diagnosed with cancer and addressing disparities in their care and outcomes. We will define cancer survivorship, identify exposures that can cause chronic health issues, and address topics related to their care. And we should just get to it. Dr. Roth, or Mike, if we can call you, uh, we can call you Mike. Welcome to the Cribsiders. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're very excited to, to have you on the show, and very grateful for your sharing your time with us this evening. And before we jump into the topic of cancer survivorship, we would love to get to know you a little bit better. And so, can you start by uh, just kind of giving us a one-liner to describe yourself and tell us a little about yourself, so we know, so we know who you are. Sure. I am a husband, father of three, pediatric, adolescent, young adult oncologist, and I will watch whatever sports game is on TV, day, night, evening, weekend, no matter. I mean, I I hate to put dates on specific episodes, but we are at a time where there have been some exciting sporting events. Uh, yeah, fo- football's been crazy recently. It's uh, There's been some good games. Um, very exciting. Do you have a favorite team? Ooh, favorite team for every sport, but um, you know, I want everyone who's listening to like me, so I won't give my biases. Smart. Oh, wow, nice. Should should they change the rules in overtime or not? <laughs> I guess that's the big thing. <laughs> as long as my teams win, please do. <laughs> what is one book you think every physician should read? Yeah, that's a great question. I you know, I, I really like the book Complications by Atul Gawande. I, I think it really shows the, the human side of things and it, it teaches all of us that, you know, error is is natural and, and not something to look down upon, but really to learn from. It's a Excellent. great rec. I like that one. Yeah. So my favorite question is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Ooh, we don't we don't have enough time for uh many of the failures, but I think my Probably my favorite failure is my inability to accomplish anything in the music world. So I, I failed at piano, I failed at drums, I failed at pretty much every instrument. And one of the reasons I think I failed is that I just gave up early because it didn't come natural to me. And, and that's been a real nice life lesson. Of, it, it's not just about doing things that come naturally, that come easy. Sometimes the biggest victories are, are when you struggle for a while. That grit mindset, growth mindset, grit, I think those are... 
constant themes that we talked about. And uh, I agree. I love that. And maybe let's do one more question that um, I like to ask as someone who's always trying to get good advice. Uh, what's the best advice that you have ever received or remember, either as a learner, as a teacher, or as a clinician? Ooh, uh, as a former fellowship director, I, I like those questions. So I, I think as a learner, most important was just to, to be excited about what you're learning and, and totally you know, throw yourself into whatever you're learning. I think as a teacher, know your audience. Make sure that you're talking to folks about you know, what they care about and on a level that is relevant to them. And then I don't know if the last part was was sort of what's that best advice that you've gotten from others or a mentor. But um, biggest thing is just work hard and, and don't worry about you know an immediate payoff. At some point it'll pay off, but in, enjoy the ride, work hard, and, and things tend to work out. Love it. The master word is work. That's uh, that's Oslerian. <laughs> that's beautiful. It's what I'm learning in residency. I love it. Yeah, it doesn't always feel good at the moment, but uh, give it some time. It's all all about the second marshmallow. <laughs> Should we move on? Crystal, do you right. want to? Yeah, you hit it. Yeah, let's let's get started. You got it. Let's get started with a case. All right. So we have Obi. He's a 12-year-old boy who was diagnosed with T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia when he was three years old. He's since completed treatment. Obi's family moved into your city, and he's coming to you for his very first visit. So starting off, Mike, how do you define cancer survivorship? Yeah, survivorship's a big term, and it, it means a bunch of different things to different folks, but for me, survivorship's all about uh, you know focusing on optimizing long-term health and quality of life for individuals who've gone through cancer treatment at any point of time in their lives. They could have been a child, they could have been an adolescent, they could have been an adult. You know, we we know those patients are at a higher risk for chronic health conditions as they get older, and our job is to lower those risks and prevent new conditions from coming on. And Cancer survivorship is clearly such a topic that, you know, there's dedicated clinics. It's something that we are doing an episode on. It, can you talk a little about, even without numbers, it seems like this is very prevalent. Like, what are some of the things that can be complications long-term of cancer therapies? What are things that we are on the lookout for? Why can't we just ignore this and say, you were successfully treated, let's move on? Yeah, that's a great question. So unlike most things in, in medicine and in oncology, Cancer survivorship actually grew out of pediatrics as opposed to coming down from the adult side to pediatrics, which is pretty interesting. You know, what we noticed over time is that we were curing more and more children of their initial cancer. And as these kids were getting older, they were developing many more chronic health conditions compared to their peers. You know, this included things like having heart conditions, having neurocognitive dysfunction, having you know trouble with different organs renal dysfunction and it really wasn't just one thing you know they really noticed over time that 20 30 years after their diagnosis when these patients were only 30 or 40 years old they tended to have a lot of health issues and it was you know just visually much different than their peers and people started to get interested in in understanding you know what caused this what led to it and most importantly what can we do to prevent it and so maybe could you talk a little bit about you have a new patient in front of you What's some of the information that you'd like to know about a patient's diagnosis and treatment? And are there certain medications or certain treatment modalities or certain cancers that make you think of specific conditions that you are keeping an eye out for? Yeah. So survivorship has definitely grown over time and it's become much more sophisticated. You know, it started initially with just observing patients and seeing what happened to them. We now know that you really want to know what are the exposures and at what age 
were patients exposed to those agents. Everyone has to remember that chemotherapy and radiation, these are toxic treatments, and they're very good at killing cancer cells, but they're also pretty good at disrupting the normal development of our healthy cells. So when we think about you know, specific agents and some of the toxicities we see long-term, 10, 20, 30 years later, you know, the classic is what some call the red devil, so anthracyclines, which we know can affect the heart, lead to cardiomyopathy where the heart doesn't pump as well. We know radiation therapy given to a young child in a developing brain will definitely cause neurotoxicity, and for many kids will actually uh, cause them to lose their ability to live independently. So it really ranges the gamut in terms of what side effects we see, but it's essential that we know what were those exposures, when were they exposed, and then have they already started to experience some side effects. And maybe to follow up on that quickly, if he's in my clinic, let's say, as a primary care physician, and I'm less familiar with, um, you know, the, I, I know that there's modalities of RCHOP and doxyrubicin and radiation, but I really don't have a good understanding of what to be looking for. Is there a good resource that, that you use or that I can use to pretend to be smarter than I am and looking up some of these medications? If I know what treatments he's on or she's on, can I look this up to uh, uh, kind of see what I should be looking for? Yeah, that's a great and tough question. So, you know, I'm married to a family medicine doc and I always tell her her job is much more difficult that, than mine. I'm super subspecialized. I know my drugs. I know my toxicities. And it's much more challenging when any patient can walk in their door and, and they could have had any exposure back in time. I think the best thing really is to have good communication with the patient's oncology team, and hopefully they were seen in a, a survivorship clinic. So hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit about transition of care and how do we care for these patients in the community setting. But it's hard to know everything about everything. And really the goals of the initial treatment by the oncologist and hopefully the survivorship clinic is to provide the patient and their new providers with the information needed to do the appropriate screening and make sure that we're not just preventing toxicities, but, you know, we didn't mention it, but a lot of these patients are at risk for second and subsequent cancers. And the screening is actually different for patients at a much earlier age than would be recommended for the general population for some things like breast cancer and colorectal cancer and things like that. So I didn't really answer your question. A lot to know, but really it's that collaboration and partnership um, that optimizes their long-term care. I sort of actually do want to get a little bit into what you're talking about in terms of uh, survivorship clinic. Can you explain a little bit about that? Who who runs that? Is that run by the oncologist or is it a, another specialist who knows only about survivorship? And what how does that work in the bridge between a patient who's survived their cancer to their primary care? Yeah, so that, that's evolved over time in terms of having survivorship clinics as sort of the standard of care. So I'd say over the past one to two decades, most pediatric oncology centers have a formal survivorship clinic, which is run by usually a pediatric oncologist, but uh, ideally run by a med-peds trained or a family medicine trained um, provider. Often endocrinologists actually run these clinics because it's very relevant to some of the side effects we see. But typically after you know anywhere from two to five years post-diagnosis or post-treatment, patients will be transitioned to the survivorship clinic where they'll start their screening for the long-term side effects from treatment. Different models in different settings. You know, at our hospital in, in Cashlack, we definitely see patients well beyond the pediatric range. The oldest patient I see in my survivorship clinic 
was treated for cancer as a child in the 1960s. So it, it, the model's different. Um, most centers, most pediatric centers don't feel comfortable caring for patients as they transition past 18, 21, 25. You can sort of choose your number. But that transition and, and that communication with their community provider all of a sudden becomes essential because now these patients will start to see folks who you know don't and shouldn't have lots of experience treating survivors of childhood cancer and really making sure that you provide them with those guidelines is essential. And can you maybe go into the detail of the actual of of a day-to-day on clinic as far as how often are you seeing the patients and and what are you deferring to primary care? What are some of those um, screening things that you're doing for a patient, especially does not seem to be having a recurrence? What are some of the things that you're looking for or, or doing in those clinic visits? Yeah, that's a great question. So what I tell every patient in their first consult with our survivorship team is that nothing we are doing is emergent anymore. None of our treatment and assessments are urgent. This is all part of your preventative care. So we see our patients typically once a year. Uh, to do screening for those side effects. And what we do specifically is we look exactly at what treatments they received, and we go to the literature to see what are the likely or potential side effects. There are very clear screening guidelines for survivors of childhood cancer. If you go to, I believe it's childhoodsurvivorshipguidelines.org, and I think I'll look that up to make sure that I'm giving you the, uh, the the right advice and people aren't searching random web pages. But the Children's Oncology Group has, has really worked hard to develop evidence-based guidelines on if you have X exposure, these are the risks, and at what interval should you be doing screening Y, Z, or AA? And you know that includes for patients who've gotten doxorubicin, what's the dose? Patients who've gotten more than you know 250 milligrams per meter square. They're at a higher risk for cardiotoxicity, or if they've gotten radiation to the mediastinum, to the chest, to the heart, they're at a higher risk. And for them, the recommendation would be to get an echocardiogram every two years versus if you're at a lower risk, it would be every five years. Um, We do know that many of our patients are at a higher risk for breast cancer if they've had radiation to the chest. We start radiation screening uh, at age 25 or eight years after the radiation exposure whichever comes later. So, you know, I can go on and on and talk for the next five hours about each specific guideline, but it's very much evidence-driven. And the focus is try to prevent those new issues from coming up. If these health conditions come up, catch it before patients are symptomatic. We don't want to diagnose a patient who's in florid renal failure. We want to start to see when their creatinine bumps up and get them to the appropriate specialist. So, one thing I've, uh, I've encountered some um, survivorship clinics here at the Cash Lake State University, and as, with some of my adult patients, I've, I've loved really looking at their survivorship notes because it really clearly delineates like what each provider is in charge of, like the specialist in charge of these follow-ups, the primary care provider is in charge of URIs and some other screenings. And I, it was, it's always a great thing to go back and refer to every time I see one of these patients in clinic. Is this something that is a norm coming out of most survivorship clinics? Yeah, it, it seems like at uh, the esteemed Cashlack State University, you have the ideal setting where all of the survivorship notes are you know, very well documented and there's a clear uh, plan of care. That's the goal. Uh, previously, it was noted by the American College of, of Surgeons that you should have a passport or some document that you provide to patients and their community providers that will help guide screening and prevention. Uh, The real world doesn't always happen. 
depends on where patients are treated. It depends on you know when they've been treated. Also depends on the age at which they've been treated. So one of the things we haven't mentioned is the disparity in survivorship care based on care setting. Pediatric oncology has been a leader a leader in survivorship care. Uh, in the you know medical oncology world, they're starting to catch up slowly. But whether you go to a community-based setting for your cancer care versus an academic setting, that can very much decide on whether you get the appropriate recommendations uh, for survivorship care. It's essential. I mean, it's really important that all patients, no matter their background, no matter where they're receiving care, receive you know the same care because we do know that many patients will have a lot of health problems as they get older. And I'm not talking getting older like 70s and 80s, but by age 30 or 40. Uh, many of these patients can have a lot of health issues. And I was wondering, can you speak more to the kinds of disparities that you see in survivorship clinic and the kinds of disparities that I know that you care about so deeply? Yeah, so I I am a childhood survivorship doc. I also am a pediatric uh, leukemia lymphoma specialist, but I spend most of my time caring for adolescents and young adults. Uh, we call them AYAs. So these are patients age 15 to 39 and a lot of the disparities that we see is if you're an 18-year-old, your oncology setting often depends on which emergency room you presented to. So an 18-year-old with leukemia, if they presented to the adult emergency room, they'll be treated by a medical oncologist, often with many very much older patients. If you're an 18-year-old and you present to the pediatric oncology, I'm sorry, the pediatric emergency room, you'll be treated by a pediatric oncologist with many, you know, four to six-year-olds with leukemia. So for survivorship, what, you know, really matters is uh, whether that care setting has a survivorship program. In many of the academic centers, survivorship programs or formal survivorship programs are starting to become the norm, but this is not universal. And that's our big push specifically at, you know, at Cashlack is to make sure that those disparities don't exist based on age, that every patient has access to appropriate survivorship care, which is really needed. Um, an 18-year-old treated by medical versus pediatric oncology, there's nothing different about them in terms of their physiology or, or what the likelihood of developing a subsequent malignancy would be. So then it really comes down to whether they're receiving the appropriate care. And maybe continuing on the disparities uh, thread, obviously age different. And my understanding, there's even different treatments based on if you're looking at pediatric versus adult guidelines, if that's correct. But also, what are other disparities? Do you see disparities in gender, in race, in socioeconomic status? Are there other uh, uh, core findings where individuals have different outcomes based on other factors? The answer is yes, yes, yes to all of those variables. And you know, similar to what we see in terms of uh, short-term survival, you see disparities in race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender. We, we see those same differences in our survivorship population. We've recently published on the long-term survival outcomes of patients who are at least five years from their initial diagnosis. And one, you see that the entire population has uh, impaired survival or they're at risk for early mortality across the board, no matter what sociodemographic variable you look at. We know that males are more likely to die younger than females. We know that patients of black race or Hispanic ethnicity likely to have earlier mortality. And we also know that patients who have lower SES are also likely to have early mortality. 
we're starting to tease out some disparities, uh, not just in mortality, but morbidity and the development of chronic health conditions. But we have high concern and reason to believe that these same disparities that we see in mortality, unfortunately, will also uh, exist for um, patients in terms of developing or being at a higher risk for developing chronic health conditions. So that really is the next area in which we're diving into. Uh, that data is sort of being assessed for AYA survivors. It's already been noted in childhood cancer survivors. Um, Should we move on with uh, yeah, the case? Yeah, Crystal, you want to you keep us going yeah. with Obi's progress? We can. So Obi is actually very eager to play sports with his friends, but his mom has concerns about his performance in school. Additionally, she's worried about his fatigue and heard that cancer survivors have increased risk of heart problems. First and foremost, how does cancer treatment impact educational outcomes for patients? And are there additional services or supports that exist for these patients? We have to think about when our patients were treated and what the exposures were. And when we talk about exposures, one, we're talking about chemotherapy, two, radiation, three, surgery. But we're also talking about a cancer experience. For some of our patients who have leukemia that may require long hospitalizations, many of these patients are spending time in a different setting as they grow up. And instead of growing and learning uh, amongst their peers, they're interacting more with adults, with nurses, with, uh, with other staff. And, you know, some of them have a, a lot of concerns just in terms of fear and, and what's going to happen next because they're so used to different medical invent- interventions that, you know, they weren't expecting. So all of these patients should have an educational uh, intervention in terms of an assessment. You know, specifically, it is recommended for all of our uh, leukemia patients to have a formal assessment after they receive treatment. Part of that is related to the fact that um, all of our patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, they receive a lot of chemotherapy in their spinal fluid, and that's been a real game changer in terms of preventing relapse uh, within their central nervous system. But we also know that that can have long-term neurocognitive effects. In the 1980s and 1990s, many more patients received craniospinal radiation, and that was really devastating for the growing and developing brain. And these patients would have a, a severe loss of IQ and other neurocognitive deficits. Unfortunately, these patients are are all at risk uh, for neurocognitive issues and psychosocial concerns. It's not that everyone will have these issues, but it's important to identify them early because you do want to get those um, special school services in place at the earliest point so you can change and improve their trajectory. And then as far as the questions on, you know, fatigue and, and chronic pain, or maybe even to, to broaden um, mental health, I imagine, is a, a constant challenge. Can you talk a little bit about how those are managed and, and their, their aerobic capacity and their, their desire to kind of keep, keep up? Yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge. And oftentimes the late side effects that patients experience are, are unpredictable on a patient-by-patient basis. So we know that by looking at a whole population, we can say X percent of patients are going to um, have mental health disorders or you know have heart problems in the future. What it's harder to do is to identify on an individual level what this specific patient's issues or challenges are going to be. You touched on a few really important subjects, and you know one exercise, exercise, exercise is, you know, point one, two, and 10 when we meet a new patient and continue our care. So we try to guide patients to do things that they can take control of their health and prevent health conditions in the future. And and those include a few things. So 
One, exercise and nutrition. Hardest to modify, as you guys know, but incredibly important to prevent chronic health conditions in the general population and those conditions that our patients are at risk for. The, the other big things that we think about are decreasing exposures like tobacco and, and sun safety and trying to prevent second cancers and, and third cancers, which we know, unfortunately, our patients have a higher risk of skin cancer and also have a higher risk of tobacco-related cancers and HPV-related malignancies. So we try to break it down and say, what can you as the patient, what can you have control over? And as they grow up and grow older, you know, they transition from relying on their parents to, to help and, you know, them manage their health to really them uh, owning their own health, which you know, many of us are hypocrites and we tell folks to exercise at least three days a week for at least 30 minutes a time. I won't tell you if I'm able to meet that guidelines, uh, those guidelines, but the goals are to really try to optimize health at the earliest stage and, and keep it going. And to go on that and even to go back a little bit, and we've talked about the increased risk of chronic health diseases. And to make sure that I am right when I or that I'm thinking about this right, if we have a patient, if, if he, she, or they have had uh, these exposures, the chronic health conditions I would be thinking about are, are, are hypertension, diabetes, um, chronic kidney disease, maybe thyroid issues. Are those the chronic issues that we see higher prevalence or is it other more rare occurrences or, or, or what, what are kind of the general sequelae that we might be, be seeing more frequently? Yeah, all of the above, um, you know, specifically diabetes, hypertension, metabolic syndrome, those are all very large concerns for our, our pediatric uh, cancer survivors. Thyroid cancer, thyroid dysfunction, breast cancer, pulmonary dysfunction, cardiac issues, any radiation to the neck and chest, those are huge issues. So what what's interesting that we see in our population, and when you've been doing this for a while and you see patients as they grow up, there's a phenomenon known as early aging, which we believe happens in our patients where there are conditions such as, as frailty, which you know you shouldn't see until patients are 70, 80 plus years old. And we're actually seeing that with a reasonable prevalence in some of our survivors who are only 30 or 40 years old. So you're essentially speeding up the timeline of you know when you would see many of these chronic health conditions develop, which should be an older age. But for a lot of our patients, it's occurring in sort of you know what would be the the middle of a of a, an individual's life. And I find that fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about how you identify frailty? And and that even in my mind makes me think when you continue. Well, we'll get to the transitions, but of things that again, as a primary care uh, provider, I should I should be looking for. Yeah, as a primary care provider, you you know whether it's recommended or not, I think you should really think of these patients as you know being their age plus you know twenty years or plus thirty years, and you know there are specific guidelines in terms of cancer screening, but I would think of these patients as you know maybe on the outside they don't look like they've aged, but a lot of their internal organs do look like they're much older, and as a family provider or uh, an internal medicine provider, you really need to think about these patients being at a much higher risk than a you know a peer who's 30 years old, where the screening guidelines are, are pretty straightforward, and there's probably not too much to do uh, other than sort of you know make sure that overall their their health is you know in good shape, their quality of life is is good, and they have access to you know the support that they require. But I mean, if you think about the care for a 70-year-old in terms of screening guidelines versus a 30-year-old, and I don't do this on a regular basis, I, I can only imagine it's night and day. 
When you're talking about um, support and things that we do for these patients, as you recognize that they may have issues with like fatigue or mental health, um, like who are our allies? Are these, are we going back to the same people we would normally like, are we looking at psychiatry and counseling? Are we talking to social work and, and the school systems? Are we using physical therapy and rehab? Like, are these all part of the system or do we do anything different apart from what we normally do? We, we are not using those resources enough and we're not implementing and taking advantage of them early enough. And that's one of the goals of what we're trying to do at, at CashLack um, for us is we want to bring these services to the patients at the earliest stage. The goal isn't to, you know, help people when they have already developed these chronic health conditions. Of course, you know, loss to follow-up is a big issue and a big concern for our patients. And if they walk in the door 10, 20 years later with a lot of health conditions, we're going to give them all of our resources. But the goal is to prevent them. Early access to physical and occupational therapy, we believe, is incredibly important. There's some work going on at our institution trying to actually assess what are the barriers to getting these patients in early all of the subspecialists who would help you with some of those chronic health conditions, which we've been talking about, we want to use them. So if patients have pulmonary dysfunction due to bleomycin or radiation exposure, we want to just try to identify that these patients have this toxicity and get them access to the, the much-needed subspecialty care. I, I think you want to have a higher level of, of worry and concern for these patients. So a patient coming in with a headache 20 years of after having a brain tumor and getting radiation therapy, on my mind, I'm thinking about, well, could they have a secondary cancer like a meningioma, which is a benign brain tumor that actually happens in a large percentage of patients who've gotten a radiation, uh, who've gotten radiation therapy in the past. Now, that's not fair to you guys. It's not fair to most internists. I'm not here to scare you guys. Uh, there's a lot of fear often about taking care of childhood cancer survivors because Folks don't know all of the, the intricacies, but, you know, my door is always open. My phone is, is you know, always there. And I would encourage everyone to, to reach out to those designated uh, survivorship experts because, you know, we can reel those, those guidelines off the top of our head and we can also just steer you to some of those online resources which could help. And we're talking a lot about the experience of providers, but as the experience of patients, what kind of support groups exist? Are there communities that are built around this concept of survivorship? That is a fabulous question. And we know that many of our survivors go on to thrive and, and do really well after their, uh, their cancer experience, their cancer diagnosis and treatment. We also know that there's a large percentage of patients who have depression, anxiety, uh, concerns for PTSD, and we actually think that peer support is among the most important uh, type of support for these patients. There are different resources available to various populations, and unfortunately, those resources aren't necessarily accessed universally. So there are a lot of online peer support groups, digital resources, the age of technology and the age of COVID. It's actually been a, a benefit in terms of having many more virtual support groups. Unfortunately, some of the work that we're starting to do now is uh, realize there's a lot of disparities in who actually accesses these support groups. You know, what we're trying to study now is, you know, why does it appear that it's mostly uh, white females who access the majority of these support groups? And we're trying to tease out what is it about the support? Is it lack of access to the support? Is it that the content doesn't speak to folks from diverse backgrounds? You know, this is all very sort of premature and early, but we need to make sure that all patients have the support they deserve and not just a subset. 
And if we really want to take care of the population who's at highest risk, these services, just like our medical support, need to offered, uh, be offered to everyone. I was going to, sort of tangential to that last question, is, you know, we were talking about patients and, um, and peer support groups, but I also assume there, there are support groups for parents too, right? Especially for our, those very young kids. They're, they're, they're obviously not going to, you know, my three-year-old's not going to go online and on Facebook and talk with their support group. So, um, There are a number of uh, peer support groups for parents. One thing that we struggle with are support groups for siblings as well. Um, that's definitely a big issue. It's not just our um, pediatric patients who are going through, uh, you know, cancer treatment. It's it also takes quite a toll on the entire family. And for many patients, a lot of their parents' resources are being dedicated to them, and their their siblings often uh, struggle. Uh, and they struggle as they grow up as well. The other challenge, which we haven't talked about, is you know being a young adult who is diagnosed with cancer and perhaps being a caregiver yourself and having young kids. And we really lack a lot of those resources. It's something that you know at our institution we're working on developing them and um, trying to have them uh, be available to folks across the country. But uh, it's a challenge. Uh, there's there's many sort of dominoes that fall when a young person's diagnosed with cancer and the goal is to figure out how can you support the patient and their family so they can, you know, thrive during and after treatment. Um, often it's not ideal, but our goal is to, you know, do what we can to at least improve their trajectory. It, it, you know, nothing's perfect for any of us. Everyone faces challenges. Unfortunately, the cards are often stacked up a little bit higher against our survivors and their families compared to the, the rest of their peers. I think this is a, a great point to move on to our next case with Trini. Trini is a 17-year-old girl who presents to you for her final pediatrician visit before leaving for college in the fall. She was diagnosed with osteosarcoma at age 13 and completed treatment last year. She's nervous but excited to move across the country and experience college life. When do you start discussing the transition to adult care for pediatric cancer survivors? Yeah, that, that's a discussion that needs to happen early and not just on the day when your patient says, you know, I'm going off to college now and I'm moving halfway across the country. One advantage uh, over the past two years that we've learned is that you can actually provide pretty qual pretty quality care just through virtual care. So what's been great about uh, our young adult program is that we've been able to connect with patients across the country and they've been able to get some of the screening studies done locally, but we've been able to counsel the patients and their providers from a, a long distance. But at an early stage when it's identified that a, a patient will need to transition their care at some stage, you need to have these conversations with your patient, with their families, and come up with a plan of action. I tell all of our patients our survivorship program is not there to interfere with your life. It's the opposite of what we're trying to do. We want you to go on to, to college, to vocational school. We want you to thrive. We want you to have a family, do things that you want to do. We just need to work out a plan of how you're going to get the care you require in a setting that is reasonable and accessible to you so you can go about going after your goals. It's complicated. You know, most folks don't have the resources to go to school and then fly back to wherever your survivorship care team is, you know, once a year. And I don't tell them that they need to do that. We can work out a plan. We will give you those recommendations in paper. They have our, you know, our number. They have access to their medical records, which every note should include a care plan. Uh, so it looks different for every patient, but the one thing that is the same across all patients is there has to be a transition plan. 
Trini comes um, with her uh, multiple questions to you for her final pediatrician visit, and she's actually wondering about the impact of her treatment on fertility. Can you just maybe discuss how does cancer impact the female male reproductive system, and what kind of questions do your patients have about their future fertility options? Our patients often as they get older have a lot of questions and a lot of concerns and a lot of worry. Uh, unfortunately, what we've found for patients who have not been to a survivorship program or an AYA program, many of them have never had fertility counseling. And for some patients, that, mean, that means they think that their fertility is, you know, has not been impacting and, and they can definitely have kids. And, you know, when I find out that they, you know, received a bone marrow transplant and received a very high intensity, uh, conditioning regimen, which, what that means is that, you know, oftentimes they're at risk for uh, infertility, premature ovarian failure, uh, azospermia. And many of these patients are just sort of shocked and stunned and there's a lot of tears. And, and then we've been on the other side where, you know, patients have been told there's no chance they can have kids. And when we look at their regimen, it really puts them at a low risk for having children or having trouble having children, having infertility. So, what we do is at every single patient visit, we counsel the patient and their family on their fertility risk. And that starts with counseling parents at a very young age when they're about to get their cancer treatment. And then as patients get older and more curious, we ask them what they want to know, what they understand. And, you know, we talk to, to kids as, as young as, you know, you know, 10 years old, under 10 years old, and just talk about the basics. And as they go through their teenage years, they say, oh, yeah, I never want to have kids. And then, you know, slowly as time goes by, you know, many of their life goals change. But for us, it's, it's about education. We want them to know their options before treatment. Many of them actually have the potential to preserve their fertility. It's much easier for, for young men compared to young women, uh, specifically with sperm banking for young women. Oocyte preservation, embryo preservation, there's a lot of barriers, and that has to do with mostly financial barriers and needing enough time um, to have prior to starting you know, treatment. If you need emergent chemotherapy or radiation therapy, often there's not enough time. But my job is to provide the education. It's you know, our patients, this is their bodies, their lives, their goals. We want them to always be aware of what these risks are. And in addition to infertility, can you talk a little bit about some of the other secondary side effects on the GU system, including things like changes to uh, menstrual cycles or one I think a lot that I feel like people don't talk about is the, the change in sexual performance or in ability uh, to engage in sexual activities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I love that you guys want to talk about the things that most providers don't want to talk about. Um, yeah, specifically, we always hit on those two issues. In terms of uh, menstrual cycles, we know chemotherapy just throws the body off. And for most patients, we actually don't want them to have a higher risk of bleeding during treatment because many of the chemotherapeutic agents will lower their platelet counts. So many of them will be on some sort of uh, OCP and we will not want them to have cycles. But Often it takes a long time for their cycles to come back if they come back at all. Often they're irregular. It really depends on the treatment exposures that they've received. Many of our patients go into premature ovarian failure, um, depending on whether they got radiation to the ovaries or certain high-risk chemotherapeutic agents. We always counsel our patients that early menopause is a major issue for our patients, and it's unpredictable. So unlike many in the working world now, we do not recommend waiting till close to age 40 to try to have kids because that window of opportunity may close earlier. 
sexual health is a big issue. Uh, it's a big issue for a number of reasons. One, because providers don't talk about it. Two, because intimacy is really important to a lot of our young adults. What I try to do in each visit is is bring it up and, and understand, you know, what's going on. We have certain recommendations for, you know, patients who experience decreased drive, uh, vaginal dryness, pain during sex. These are hard things to, to treat, but there's, you know, some basic things that we can recommend. And I don't know what the podcast is rated, but, you know, things just like having a, you know, a big bottle of lube nearby. These, these are things that are easy recommendations, which most folks don't think about. You know, the, the last part of that to mention is the anxiety around sexual performance or the guilt between partners. Uh, many times one partner, you know, still has the drive, but the other, you know, isn't feeling great and they're just not into it. And that guilt or lack of communication causes a lot of tension. Body image is an issue. I mean, we can probably spend a whole podcast just talking about, you know, some of the challenges that come up with relationships and intimacy but what I would say to every provider out there is just ask. There's often a fear of, you know, not knowing what to do with the answer. Ask the question and, you know, there are folks around who can help. And the goal is for the patients just to, to sort of do as well as they can through and beyond treatment. Can you guys tell me what, what the podcast is rated? <laughs> I think we're probably PG-13 borderline R. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, we're uh, – no, we're not R-rated. We're – we're for the kids. It is for the kids. So, um, and they're yeah, providers. Just, yes, yeah, I, I think your your example is quite appropriate and, yeah, and actually yes. very helpful. Um, I, I love the way that all throughout what I'm hearing is that it's important to have really open communication and that the patient has and really empowering the patient to say like, this is my body and this, you know, experience is not something that everyone shares, but this is experience that I know about and I get to be the expert on my health and I get to feel like I have an equal seat when it comes to talking to my provider. And I, I love that it's like not just helping them with, okay, I have my screenings, but what are the things that are important to me? Identifying your patient's goals and saying, okay, what's next to get you to wherever, you know, you want to go. So I, I love that ability uh, for cancer survivorship to take an experience where you can feel very very isolated or feel very weak or made to feel that you don't have any power. But then in survivorship, you really get to give a, or not even give, but really empower that patient to say, you know, I can make some decisions for me, whereas it seems that like decisions have been made for me in the past. Krista, I'd, I'd love to bring you on my presentations and just have you say that over and over again. Uh, that was beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, empower our patients, right? They they are at risk for other issues. They've had, you know, tough experiences in their life. It's not fair that they've gone through this. But what can we do as a provider to improve their health and quality of life? And that's really what we ask ourselves every day in our survivorship program and every day in our AYA clinic. Don't assume that you know what your patient's going through. Just ask the questions and try to figure out where you can plug yourself in and help them out. In trying to go a little deeper for some of the people in our audience that might not have as much access to cancer survivorship or that want to try to to help learn more, as far as these exposures that we've talked about, the specific chemotherapy agents or radiation, are there ones that are the most common? You know, is is eighty percent of a lot of the field the response to four terrible medicines or, you know, are there high yield cancer survivorship tricks that some of the primary care providers or general pediatricians can get to get a little taste of, of the specifics? 
There are definitely some more common long-term side effects compared to others based on specific exposures. I, I don't want everyone listening to the podcast to think that every childhood, adolescent, or young adult cancer survivor is going to have a life full of chronic health conditions and severe and life-threatening disease. Many, many patients go on to you know, live a healthy, normal life without a lot of uh, health concerns. And if they go through the proper prevention and screening um, care guidelines, you know, they can do quite well. There are some specific agents that are, are much more toxic. I, I think, you know, radiation, wherever you receive it in the body, those are organs at risk. I mean, if you start head to toe and, you know, if we were just to think about the brain getting radiation, you're going to think about what does the brain do. So you think about neurocognitive deficits, you think about hormone issues, endocrinopathies, and then you always think with radiation, second cancers. If you were to move down to the abdomen with that same radiation, you're going to think, you know, still about second cancers in terms of colon cancer if uh, the colon was exposed. But if the kidneys were, you know, in the radiation field, of course, you're going to need to monitor the, the kidneys. So I, I think in some ways radiation's the, the easier one because it sort of makes sense that radiation's going to harm or kill healthy cells that um, would otherwise function normally. You get into some specifics like doxorubicin, where you think of the heart, cisplatin, where you think of hearing issues and kidney issues. Um, and then you think of some other agents such as cyclophosphamide and iphosphamide, high doses, you think of infertility. The, you know, the good thing is that all of this is documented in survivorshipguidelines.org. That is free for everyone to use. It, you know, you can spend hours going through each of the agents, but it's sorted by exposure. So if you hit Control F on your computer, and I hope that works on a Mac as well, but you'll be able to just search for your exposure and really find what organs are at risk and then what's the screening recommendations and at what interval. If that's not enough and you have more questions, most of our communities, the academic sites will have a local expert. Send an email, give a call. Uh, you know, people really want to help. Do you do you feel there's anything else that uh, that's in the survivorship topic that we haven't touched yet? The biggest thing is is don't be afraid of survivors. It's incredibly rewarding to take care of childhood, adolescent, and young adult survivors. These are incredibly re resilient people. They've gone through experiences. I, I I tell our patients, you know, you've worked five jobs and you know done everything you need to do in in life, and it's really incredible the journey that you've gone through and what you've accomplished. Not to say it's not without struggle, but you know, going through their experiences with them and helping them along, it's wonderful to see these patients grow up. It's wonderful to be a part of their lives. You know, they come back and, and that relationship is just in incredibly special. So embrace them. Don't push them away. Don't get the phone call from a colleague saying, I have this really complicated survivor who has X, Y, and Z issues. You know, you probably don't want to see them. Do the opposite. You know, open it up in your community let people know that you want to see these patients. And if you have questions, reach out. Reach out to folks like me. Survivorship docs, I think, are incredibly kind. And you guys can judge me after the podcast, but we, we just want to help. Excellent. I think these are great take-home points. As we wrap up the show, are there are there other things that you think our listeners should know or, or anything that you want to plug, any resources or things that you want to share with our listeners? 
biggest thing is thank you for what you do. As I said before, my wife being a family medicine trained doc, what you guys do every day is is hard and uh, really just a, a privilege to to help care of take care of patients with you guys. And and thanks for all you do. Uh, it it means a lot to us subspecialists, and it it means a ton to our our patients and their families. So really, just thank you. That's very, very kind. Thank you for for taking the time. This has been so wonderful. I think uh, has been a great exposure to our audience for learning more about cancer survivorship and just having a lower threshold to, to, I think, not worry, but to make sure that the screening and secondary causes are very much uh, being aggressively pursued and and worked up. And so I think that's going to be one of my big take-home points. I I'm very grateful. Thank you so much for for taking the time with us tonight. Uh, Thank you so much. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get our show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds in our newsletter at our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite player. You can email us, too, at thecribsiders at gmail.com. We answer every email just about. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Crystal Nora, and our executive producer for this episode, Dr. Matt Cruz, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. I've been Crystal Kamtochukwu Nora. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you and good night and good morning or afternoon wherever you live. See you guys. Bye. (laughs) Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.